This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This one we're touching in depth on a very off-the-cuff, end-of-the-announcement comment that Wizards made last week specifically as it pertains to organized play. So during that announcement, they said something that's, you know, been kind of echoed as something that should be a priority by some people, and it's that we're focusing more on the gathering. So what we're taking a look at this week is kind of a deep dive on what that means, what it could look like for events, how that's been reflected in other industries at some points, because, you know, obviously magic is not the only collectible. There's a million collectibles, pop culture convention stuff out there where tournaments kind of take a backseat to what people are really there for, which is to hang out. So with that, let's get started. Yeah. Um, I I think this movement actually started in 2019 and I I couldn't find uh, anything surrounding this, but that was basically the advent of the command zone at uh, magic fests. And when a Magic Fest was defined, thus, you know, changing the parlance surrounding the first step on your way to being a pro, essentially, if you discount the PTQ into our PTQ system, whatever it was, um, it, it seemed like this is really what GPs were to become. They were to become a convention, a festival in Watsi's terms. And in that summer, basically surrounding modern horizons release into vegas you know three events in uh dc minneapolis and then culminating in vegas it really started to feel like we got that kind of gathering atmosphere where the side events didn't necessarily overtake the main but everything people felt like they were there more to be there with people of a like mind than be spiky at a tournament and try and do well and grind in on Friday, grind the buys, grind the PTQ, similarly Saturday and Sunday. And to me, that's where I imagine we are going to be taking the gathering is we we might shrink the main event size, we might cap the main event size, and instead focus more on what goes on outside you know the turbo town drafts etc uh, removing the grindable events and essentially making everything on demand and just letting the players kind of dictate what happens and empower them and give them a little more agency at the event itself i really hope it goes back to and this is something that you know older magic players remember was I kind of see it getting back to almost like the regional pre-release structure. Uh, For those of you that are newer, that are used to going to your LGS, this isn't a thing. But it used to be you would have all of your LGSs would kind of band together. And they would rent out a hotel and you'd have 72 hours where like 500 Magic players from your area would just camp out fire an on-demand seal that was like win a case to top eight or whatever and you wouldn't sleep more than four hours over the course of 72 and you would just be dead by the end of the weekend and you know you had on-demand events constantly and the focus was more on hanging out being with your friends in these casual like you said on-demand events and there was a lot of vendor variety at those. And granted, it was mostly your local guys. Uh, but you saw a lot of stuff there that you wouldn't necessarily see at a Grand Prix. Because some of your local stores would bring their Pokemon with them. Or yep. their, you know, as the case may be now, like flesh and blood or statues. And it would just be stuff that like, hey, you know, we're... You may live an hour east of the city, but you come in for this event and this store's from an hour west. And they bring a bunch of statues or stuff that you don't normally get to look at and mm-hmm. you can trade cards for. And it created this really like friendly atmosphere. Uh, not that necessarily Grand Prix or Magic Fest, whatever, have gotten away from it, but it was a lot more casual. It was mm-hmm. a lot more hanging out. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, if it ends up being where we go away from these giant convention centers uh 
where we have events and we go to like, you know, for example, I was at a sports card show this weekend that was just at a machinist hall and there were about 50 vendors there. It pulled, you know, I'm in St. Louis. It pulled from Nashville, from Chicago, from Kansas City, from Little Rock, from hours away that people came to this thing for just a weekend. Mm -hmm. And you started to see that with Grand Prix towards the end was it became a lot more, like you said, with the advent of the command zone. And even on the vendor side, I noticed some of the guys that traveled to all of the shows didn't necessarily show up anymore. Yep. Because you weren't on a national scale as much. You were pulling from the locals a lot more than you used to. And I expect that if that happens, what you're going to see is more of this decentralization almost. Where, you know, when you go to your pre-release and you vent, you know what you're bringing. You know what your crowd is. Exactly. You don't need to bring an entire stockpile of stuff. So I think what you'll start to see, I hope, is we'll get these decentralized, more localized events that are more about the community and less about just trying to spike it and make the pro tour. Yep. Yeah, I think the diversification in both the vendor and the player base is going to be good for these events, and that like that's where I felt we were heading with those last couple events in 2019 prior to um, the fall. And if the draw for the event becomes less the main, the spiky event, and more the command zone, I think that is huge for, you know, the fest. It's incredibly popular, as we saw from its advent. They built uh, how many weekends out of the other commander events that, like, Star City ran, um, whatever those were. Like, those were huge, where they did a commander set release uh, over those weekends. You know, people come to those and adding a dedicated place to play a structured game of commander be it in pods set up like star city would do or free play like i believe the command zone is is incredibly uh, attainable for the average player they might not want they might not want to spend all day at the convention hall but if they can just pop in play a couple games of commander on friday or saturday or sunday whatever so be it they'll do that they'll pay the nominal fee for that badge to get in and just throw down for the amount of time they want to instead of being locked in the main and overall i think that's kind of fine and it all really is predicated on the top of that announcement which is without pro tours or really worlds to grind to the entirety of the event shifts to player agency it becomes the on-demand flights like we're used to it becomes uh, the command zone or whatever casual format somebody wants to walk around holding a sign for looking for players. Play pre-modern, play middle school, whatever. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, we'll see hopefully more stuff like the Oathbreaker crew. They showed up in Minneapolis. They had their own booth yeah. and demo area where people could throw down and play that format and just become this more kind of jovial atmosphere overall and step away from kind of the spikiness that Grand Prix had become you know yeah and it wasn't bad it's just like those events even as a vendor like you're not loose everything's super tight everything's super rigid at these events starting from the moment you sign up to the moment that event is done because it's all rigid rigid and structured even at a a sealed event because you still have to tailor your stock as a vendor to the area you're going to we've discussed regionality before on the cast we're not going to you're not going to bring the same cards to the greater uh new york city and north Atlantic seaboard you're not as you would down to dallas those are two completely different regions with two completely different player bases so you have to know where you're going and it's very strict but a very loose atmosphere where it's mainly just commander and on-demand sides it's just relaxing overall for everyone and i think that's a you know something to look forward to as a vendor would it be the events that i want to be going to when something else like tcg con is available probably not but it begins to move away from like i keep harping on the spiky atmosphere and bringing in a true convention feel and and i think the important thing too is that as you get away from this national scale and like the tcg con thing you do have the ability for backpackers to come in and open up a booth yeah at you know, hey, you know what? I don't necessarily know you all the time. Like, Ogre literally started doing this at regional pre-releases. That was kind of how he made his name for himself, was just being a backpacker or grinder that just had a booth and had a bunch of cards. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of examples of that across the country where you have this opportunity now as 
just a layman vendor. You don't necessarily need to drop $10,000 to get a booth. You can drop, you know, a few hundred to a thousand and then just bring a few cases of what you have and see what happens on the weekend. Yeah. And I think that's a lot better, not just for the vendors, obviously, and your backpackers, but I think that's better for the players, too. It all because, ripples down. Yeah, it, it just benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. And I, the one caveat I have to this is I think that in a way it seems like Wizards might be losing, or sorry, Hasbro might be losing touch with some of what gave Magic staying power all these years, which was the competitive scene. Mm-hmm. That said, I think we've seen a shift over the last few years that we're getting more towards this casual mindset that even, you know, EDH being the financial driver of the game, as opposed to years ago, it was extended standard legacy when those were your formats. And I think that, you know, this some people have said it's bad. And I think this is actually a good thing because it does give more opportunity for you know, your FNM final boss every week to win a big event. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think a lot of this has to be caveated with, we're able to talk pretty accurately about what we're going to see at these events because we know they're going to remove, like, the professional, quote-unquote, lifestyle from Magic Fests and from grinding those to the Pro Tour. What we don't know, and this is where the caveat comes in and we can't really speak to this, is what excuse me, what competitive play is going to look like afterwards. They never actually came forth with a plan, so there still could be the competitive avenue to the game. It's just not going to look like what we knew, right? So we're pushing that off for a while, and we're kind of talking from experience here because we've been to events that are more casual. Like every anime convention I've ever been to has a gaming hall. Magic events are held there. You know, uh, the PAX... Yep. Gen Con, uh, PAX events, I think Origins holds them too. All these large conventions are built around what the primary theme is with gaming secondary to it. And we started saying it over that summer of 2019 where it's just like these last few Magic Fests have felt more like that where it's like, yeah, sure, you have these spikes coming in to play the main. It's awesome. But you could play the same formats in on-demand sides or you could just jam Commander. And we started to see this change. I think the vendor perspective on this is pretty interesting. I was talking to somebody about it today. You know, as a hardcore like vendor, I would immediately move to TCGCon. I would remove myself from Magic Fests for the time being. My plan would be TCGCon and anime conventions because if my audience shifts to mainly a casual mindset you know they reduce the size of the mains or let's just say population truly does finally flip and you have more casuals the event that spikes now i have less opportunity to sell what my like player profile at my vendor level looks like because i'm not a commander vendor right i might be an uh, a modern vendor and if more commander players are there, I'm not going to do well. So I'll shift to TCG Con or I'll shift to another organizer's tournament system that affords me the opportunity to sell, uh, to have a higher sales velocity because the player profile at those events meets me, my mind is much my, more, yeah, yeah, what you're looking for. And then without having to support the prize pools associated with these events and the logistics, that then reduces the, hopefully, reduces the player entry fee and booth fees and so by stepping away as a larger vendor to target a better market that does allow other people to fill that space you do get that more like region small regionality uh, back you do get the local vendors finally you know able to come up and play with the names or in the same space that those other large names used to and i i think it's telling too when you look at those festivals like your PAX Eats, your Gen Con, your stuff like that, they still have competitive events there. Oh, yeah. It's just not part of the pipeline. Like, those beta drafts at Gen Con are awesome, but they're competitive. And you you still get that. It's just that it's less the focus and more on, here's a really cool thing you can do that happens to be competitive. Yes. Rather than do this thing, make a living off of this, get to the Pro Tour. And I think that's the important thing is that you'll see it starts to shift if we go back to the gathering. Uh, you start to see much more of that, like, friendly competition mm-hmm. and less of the cutthroat. Well, there will still be angle shooting no matter what. Oh, absolutely. But less of the cutthroat, you know, in it to win it. And I was actually talking to a couple of, like, 
owners of vending companies that do GPs, and they said, you know, look, if we go away from the national system, there's no reason for me to go to every event anymore. Yeah. I, I'm going to go to Seattle, where it's good every year. I'm going to go to Dallas, to Indy, you know, the big the cities. Big ones, yeah. Which means there's a lot more opportunity in some of these smaller cities, like your Oklahoma City type events, yep. where, you know, a local vendor can come in and make a big impression by just stepping up one day. And it doesn't make sense for a lot of these companies to compete on the national scale if there's no reward for doing it because there were some companies where their business model was i'm going to go to this show mm -hmm. and i know i'm going to lose money but i'm doing it because it helps my booth placement at vegas for the next one yeah at seattle yep. at new york or wherever Forever. and that'll be interesting to see some of those guys start to drop out of those markets and i'm curious now what we're going to see from star city because that's the next step to me. And they, you know, I vented the Star City Circuit as well. Even those, although obviously the focus is the main event and always has been, even those still shifted more and more heavily towards Commander, towards the casual, the on-demand events. Yep. And as much as they advertise it as this big competitive space, you know, some of the best weekends I had as a vendor were literally at booths camped right next to the EDH area where it was just the gathering and oh, yeah. there wasn't people spiking for thousands of dollars in prize money. Yeah. Uh, the I played in Star City or SEG tour events and I've played in one I think one Grand Prix run by Star City and I got like That's ridiculous. Yeah, I got like the three day commander pass because I was just there to to chill with some friends before uh, GP pit. I flew from Vermont to Atlanta, drove from Atlanta to uh, where I was hanging out, and then from there to Pittsburgh for the next GP. And that was raucously fun because it was just on-demand pods. It was basically what the command zone is now, but a little more structured. So instead yeah. of like planning your flag and saying you're looking for a game, you just like put in your little slip or whatever, and they had, um, uh, I think it might have been like a, a WSOP application, a World Series of Poker application that just created eight-person okay. tables or four-person yeah. four person tables very quickly. And so we just kept just pulling names, pulling names, pulling names, and like it was just rapid fire commander. And it didn't matter what you were playing for, tickets, what have you. It's just the fact that you could just cycle through commander games infinitely and quickly. And that was so much more fun than actually like dealing with the main in any way, shape, or form. Because it wasn't legacy. So it wasn't a good main. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, that said, if this is where we go when we start to have, like I said, these more these more jovial events, I think overall for the health of the game, it, it's it's really good because it's more attainable for your average player. You, you don't have to take a day off to come down on Friday because that's when the events you want to play are. You know, your Turbo Towns are only firing then and what have you. When we focus more on the side events, things change. It opens the door for a lot more people to kind of come in. And like I said, whether we... We cap the main from favor more size, or maybe we cap attendance total, what have you. I think it's a good shift, you know, overall. And it's hard to say that this would fail the game because there's no avenue for pro play anymore, aside from whatever the thing is for Worlds, because that was a janky-ass part of the announcement. We just don't know what's coming down the pipe from there, and I don't think whatever happens to that really affects the, you know, the Magic Fest side of things. If these shows tightened up and, you know, there's no more Grand Prix, there's no more reason why doors have to open at 8 a.m. and close at fucking midnight because the event's still running. No, all the hours shorten as well, and that's that makes it more attainable for vendors and more attainable for players, and I think this just becomes better overall. And the only negative that I can really see about moving Grand Magic Fests away from what they are to what they could be is if the player fees aren't reduced because they're no longer paying for the main, but you can let them spend yeah. 80 plus dollars out of pocket for side events, and it's still the same $80, right? Yeah. And if booth prices don't come down, because now that's just prohibitive to smaller vendors. And that's one of the things that was interesting was obviously, you know, we discussed this on the cast, and you and I discussed it in private, how it seemed more and more like, well, channel's probably gonna lose exclusivity, uh, you know, calls were put into old TOs like, hey, get a pitch together for this. 
uh, and that the rumors that they were going back to regional TOs and the regional system from way back in the before times where you had pastimes, Legion, Star City, Tom Channel, Shea. all yep. carving out yep. a region. And, you know, back when those existed, they still had large Grand Prix, mm. but because there was competition, prices were kept down on bids. Yes. And it's interesting seeing the setups and how they've evolved from the vendor perspective over the last few years that, you know, you had your half booths and that was it. And then you had your full booths and then you had your islands and your super islands and more and more got added to this. And I think that what you're going to see, especially when we first come out, is everything's going to be scaled back. Oh, yeah. Because if we go to this regional system, Pastimes hasn't done, I mean, they do Gen Con. But Gen Con's a whole different animal oh, yeah. than what a Magic Fest would be. You know, Legion hasn't really done big events in a minute. So you'll see these people try to, like, figure it out a little bit. But like you said, if those if the booth prices stick, if you're paying a minimum of seven, dollars $8,000 a booth, you're going to get two vendors. Yeah. And, you know, you're not going to get your Moose Loots and your TOA showing up at every single one anymore if they can't, you know... There's going to be 300 people there. Why am I? Why am I going to do this? And the thing that we've seen, and I forget who it was that said it, but basically said, you know, at this point, it seems like the majority of people that are showing up for Grand Prix or Magic Fests aren't there for the main event. They're there for the sides, like mm-hmm. the Vegas that we were at. They had the command, some of the commander pods. Literally, they had so many people there for commander. They had to have another conference room that that stuff was in. Because so many people showed up for that. Meanwhile, half of the tables for the main were empty by round two. So something, you know, it's it seems that this movement towards more of the gathering has been happening. And them acknowledging this finally is just good for organized play. Yes, yeah. Uh, And I think, you know, you and I discussed, I think what you'll see is you'll probably have like a Star City or someone say, hey, we're doing our circuits. Mm -hmm. And then we'll hit watsy events next year and that's generally been the feedback from the vendors i've talked to is we're not going to see large scale grand prix type stuff until next year because if we were doing a vegas as the first like welcome back it would have been this month yeah it would have been solicited we we would have heard about it this month yeah yeah i'd like for them to split the uh the system you know and there's no whatever they want to do with pro play you just hold the pro circuit and you kind of treat it like i don't want to it's not not a good look but it's comparing magic to professional poker isn't too far off when they do cross when players do cross over all the time and if you treat the main you know you're uh meaning the main event at, at a Grand Prix, a WSOP like or, a WSOP, yeah. and that's it. That's all that happens, and now it's a brand new event type, and, you know, maybe you bring in vendors, maybe you don't. Whatever, and it's just a, it's just people playing, and you continue along with the Magic Fest that helps you separate. But now you're creating different player profiles, and it, it's not like a logistical nightmare. It's just something Watsy has to kind of, like, admit to themselves after, I don't know, I've been saying it for almost a decade now, starting with the original Innistrad, that their player profiles are pretty clear and they need to just admit there's a casual and a competitive and separating them is not the worst idea in the world because you can serve each one of them fairly reliably. It's just more work on your end, meaning Watsy. And if they do create that separation, I don't think that's bad for the game at all. Like, Like I said, logistically, it's going to be a bit difficult. But at the same time, it still allows players to, to kind of move through this ecosystem organically. You can let them play locally, you know, run at FNMs at the store level where Watsi wants to shift focus. You can bring back PTQs if you want to and put them at the store level or make them a, a little more, you know, or bring back regionals and nationals and all this other stuff and then just kind of create this identifier like okay if you want to be spiky there's an avenue for you and it's here and if you don't and if you just want to be casual it's over here and neither is wrong and we celebrate everyone yeah you know i i mentioned back 
with original Innistrad release because that was the first draft set where I really saw like just unplayable EDH cards in yeah. my draft set and I was just like just create two separate fucking products create the draft yeah. product that has all the odds and ends and then the the other product which is just for people to crack for the cards they want to play in standard and EDH and it's not like Watsi doesn't understand the difference between doing that we kind of have it now we have set boosters we have draft boosters it's like they're starting to admit and starting to create products for this deviation and I think that's good for the game because it helps people identify with different aspects of the game and you don't have this awkward like butting of heads you don't have you know this uh this you know rustling of um ideals at events where you sit down for a commander pod and you have one spike in your pod of three and you know the the spike is just like whatever simian spirit guide uh monocrypt swamp blood moon enjoy the rest of the game you know yeah you don't have shouldn't have that anymore because there's an avenue for that spike now and there's an avenue for those casual players and i i think it's a perfectly fine thing to kind of admit and lean into and i think that it's it's been interesting that that's kind of been the you know using edh as an example the separation of cedh and regular edh at command zones even yeah was one of the first like examples you saw excuse me an organized play of that happening and they were like hey Bring your high-powered stuff over here. Low-power battle cruiser, whatever, yep, over, over here. There. And, like, you had that, and that was a discussion, and it's been a discussion in the EDH community of, oh, let's get a separate ban list, you know, yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, forever. And I think that, you know, like a lot of things in Magic, seeing that push from the community, evidently Wizards finally, you know, pulled the blinders off of their eyes and was like, oh, yeah, maybe there's something to this. Of course there is. Yeah. And it's okay to service those, like you said. And we do have set boosters and draft boosters now, where the one is geared towards competitive play. And the one is exactly what you said. It's, I'm going to crack it, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to see if I can get the cards I like, because I like lottery tickets. Yeah. And that's fine. And I think the more that they embrace that and organize play, the better it is overall for the health of the game. I think... You know, being able to just, if if they want to go, you know what, hey, we like Arena, it's a great product, that's where our competitive tour is going to be. Yep. Awesome. Now that, you know, you have competitive on Arena, great, we can do whatever we want with these products and paper. And it doesn't matter because we're trying to sell packs. Just like Ed said, they don't care, they're just trying to sell packs. And you can cram whatever inserts you want to, everybody wins. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this overall is a good move. Going to the gathering is good. Financially, I think it's going to require them to continue on the path they've been on. Yeah. Uh, which I know I sent you that, or I thought I sent you that picture of uh, what's in what pack, how oh. foils are distributed. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, we're going to get this for every set now because that's what they have to do or what they're going to do, I guess, to try to satisfy every artist or every player, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, let's let's get it started. It's going to be a nightmare. Thanks, Ben Blyweiss, for your due diligence of screaming into the clouds at Watsi on what are they doing. But I think this is what we are seeing now with sets and inserts is the future of paper magic. I think financially that continues with these variations, especially once they start focusing more on the gathering and they realize you know what we can print whatever we want in these sets and people you know whatever variations we want etched foil regular foil old border non-foil whatever and i think that that's just how it is and we as vendors need to get used to it absolutely and it changed and everything about the paradigm we know changes and at, yeah. at the end of the day uh, i'm always gonna liken it back to if Magic Fests really were attempting to be more of a convention, uh, be it like a Comic-Con or an anime show or something like uh, PAX, where the primary focus was on the peripheral of the game and what goes on, the, the peripheral being the side events, and there was less focus on the main, then that makes it more attractive 
to more people and you still have the ability to hold these really grand events a couple of times a year like we've talked about if vegas is your flagship event every year it still allows you to blow the doors off vegas because you know what when you do that you have a big room and you have all these people coming in you're going to have large vendors flock to this place SeaTac, same thing you know uh the greater uh new york new jersey area same thing you're gonna have all these big profiles come out to these events even if we are focusing on just mainly sides it'll still happen yeah i'm i'm excited for it and it just kind of harkens back to the nostalgia that you brought up with the regional pre-releases i played not only did i play uh, regionals which was standard uh at and a time where that still existed i played it in the same room i played the dark steel pre-release in yeah and that was awesome yeah 500 some odd person event in the fall for uh standard and then coming back a couple months later to play uh the dark steel pre-release i think it was dark steel yep maybe it's fifth on either one it doesn't matter same room it it hosted the same number of people and it just when we went back to the store level stuff it was cool because it was intimate but i kind of missed the the big pomp and circumstance that like goes with it you know i yeah i missed that part of the gathering and we go back to it i think it's awesome yeah, when when you'd have like in a main event number three, the top eight splitting a case and a half yeah. of dissension is, and then they announce it at the same time they're announcing pairings for the next main the event. Next main it's main like, event. all right, this is this is great. Yeah, you can just roll it. You know, it's yeah. awesome. And like I said, uh, or like you said, minimal sleep, maximum magic. Awesome, bring it. Um, yeah, it was great. All right, you ready for picks? Let's do it. All right. uh, I think you went first last week, so I'll go first this week. So. Uh, this week I'm picking a big dumb green creature, and it Shocker. is, here, uh, it is Regal Force. <laughs> Not the biggest, but, def- but definitely the dumbest. So uh, it's four triple green. When Regal Force comes into play, draw a card for each green creature you control. So where does this card sit in the format? Well, uh, it is eminently top tier in token decks that can support a triple green pip creature and it's truly an agnostic draw spell because it doesn't tie you to a tribe it just ties you to a color you know and now that painter's servant legal everything's green uh which really benefits elves okay so it is basically just part of the go wide strategy that you'll see all over the format i'll I'll bring up um where is it Uh, edh rec real quick and you know the top commanders are pretty much mono green and you see a lot of the uh tribal stuff in here you've got saplings you've got elf stuff you've got some big mana to just make big dumb green creatures you go down you see bears because why the heck not and the commanders that go with this stay green but the more you scroll down the page you really see that the token strategy exists in every color combination you know you have counterspell as one of the reprints attached to this card you have sun titan you have um some some teamer stuff in here as well you know it is really just this card that should exist throughout the entirety of the format so the the longer this format exists then the more watsy caters to edh player the higher upside this card gets so you know right now it looks like it's really narrow but in reality it's a very wide card this is very applicable to a large portion of the format so i think this is actually kind of underserved but not because of a lack of uh utility or price point because it's very cheap it's like a two dollar three dollar card um, or the abil- or the inability to support the triple green, but because it doesn't get a lot of looks. This card is like a relic of the past, but it's still one of the best cards at what it does, and I would think this should actually be foundational for a token strategy if it didn't seemingly fall out of fashion. Like, if people still remembered about this card, I would expect it to be, you know, alongside Sol Ring when you're building your next tokens deck. So my timeline for this is... Uh, pretty cut and dry it's a 12 month minimum and i'll bring out the stocks graph again you can see a recent uptick on it and it's just taken a long time to get here after a very long trough so you know we went from about two dollars a year ago to about 260 right now which is not the greatest uh slope that we've seen on some of our picks um and happy coincidence today the squirrel commander was just spoiled and that adds another go wide tribe to the pile that regal force can support but because these will all be new builds and the references on EDH rec for tribal decks don't quite create a feedback loop <clears throat> that we would need to see a shorter turnaround, my expectation is natural demand carries us forward slowly and 2020 is our out. Uh, for reference, I've been watching this card for about four months. 
uh, in, in December, Card Kingdom was buying 18 at $2.05. Currently, they're buying 14 at $2.25, which is, again, not a huge increase. Uh, but at the same time, TCG Player was selling 88 at $1.97, and now they have 61 at 236 That means if you want to go for credit uh, for the last few days, actually, you've been able to arbitrage from uh, TCG Player directly to Card Kingdom for uh, a positive credit amount. So we are getting there. But to actually begin clearing a decent profit in cash 12 months. So all this said, because of the new squirrel cards and the opportunity for content creators to give us the looks we need. Um, it, this all definitely does exist. I'd keep an eye out for anyone leaning in uh, one Smodern Horizon 2 hits. Star City Games, Commander Versus, and the MTG Goldfish crew are generally known for looking at the new set and then playing at least one game with the commanders they like. And if any of them highlight this card or cast it to even a mediocre effect, I would expect a six-month turnaround at this point. Because again, this card is extremely efficient at what it does. And it is, uh, while <clears throat> it's not at reprint risk, it's been reprinted twice, once in a dual deck and once in Eternal Masters, the price point on this card is not based on anything more than just really falling out of fashion amongst token players for whatever reason. Slate of Ancestry, also a really good card, similarly yeah. fell out of fashion, saw a reprint, it's just been cratering ever since, but it's just this kind of like lack of looks and lack of feedback loops that's really kind of keeping us here, but there is natural demand, we've seen it over the last four months, and this will continue to move forward. And it goes with all my other green picks, because Watson <clears throat> is green. Boy, do they. Something Best. big and dumb and splashy. Pretty good. Uh, I... I think it's good. I think it's one of the important things, too, is that it's one of the few cards in green that draws you cards by doing what green does. And, you know, you get cards like Harmonites that draw you cards just happen to be green. Yeah. Green dumps dudes on the board, and this draws you cards off that. And when you touched on the reprint risk, I think it's important, you know, casting cost-wise, theme-wise, this doesn't exist to me in a place where they can reprint it in a standard draftable set. No, yeah. It, it seems like if we're going to get it, we're going to get it in another Commander product, which we know is limited run at this point. Or we're going to get it in a Masters set, which isn't happening anymore, maybe? Question mark? So, I don't really see where this gets reprinted anytime in the near future unless we somehow magically go back to Lorwyn and we get Regal Ur Force. Yeah. And like something similar, almost like a time shifted version. Yeah, my concern but, for big commander cards and their reprintability a lot of times falls on the fact that we can't get them in draftable sets because they are just uncastable. Yeah. And it was last week we talked I talked about Praetor's Council. You're going to get this card back towards the end of the pack if there's not an elf theme that creates a ton of mana. Uh, even yeah. a ramp strategy doesn't do you a whole lot because you're ramping to a 5-5 five five that draws you maybe two or three cards because it's an ETB trigger. It's not a cast yeah. trigger, right? In Modern Masters 2, the ramp strategy ended with Karn Liberated and Apocalypse Hydra. Both of those win games on their own. Regal Force does not. So it it's, doesn't just slot in. Yeah. You gotta work. But like you said, you know, you go back to com uh, to Commander and you make like the elemental deck and you throw like team or elementals together, sure, slide it in. It's an elemental, it's on theme, quote unquote. Yeah, whatever, go for it. But that doesn't add that many more to the population overall. And once natural demand eventually does kick in, take over, and you know, price just starts to rocket, it's not coming it's not coming back, and I would expect it actually to probably sit between eight and ten which is, I think, the highest high we've ever had on this. Yeah. Let me go back. Yeah, actually, it hit 15. Uh, oh, wow. It, uh, it just kind of cruised all the way up to 15 quietly from Return to Rev through uh, Eternal Masters, which was when it was reprinted, and that basically took care of the scarcity issue because this is a Lorwyn block rare, and we just have not had the looks we need to move this. Fair. You. I think it's good. I am going for, hear me out on this. This, this is going to be a lot of words. The Japanese alternate art, mystical archives, dark ritual foil. Not etched foil, regular foil. Uh, 
This card's only $30. All right. It just got printed. I get it, guys. It's in a bunch of collector boosters, whatever. If the invocation is $100 right now, and it looks like someone literally polished a turd and put it on cardboard, this card needs to be more than $30. Yep. TLDR. At any rate, it's a four of in every Eternal Storm deck that can run four of them. It's a one of in every EDH Storm deck. It is eminently cooler than Gold Polish Turd Invocation. I think it's much better than the Judge promo, which just recently went from forty to fifty dollars to almost two hundred. Uh, I think that it just looks cool, and if you look at the price timeline on the other promotional versions of this card, so I'll directly look at the Amonkhet Invocation stock graph. It sat at forty dollars for a while. We hit Ikoria, and Thassa's Oracle gets printed. We see it start to spike. Then we have the Invention and Expedition Surge that's just happened over the last six to eight months, where Soul Ring hit $800 or $1,000 or whatever for the Masterpiece series. All of a sudden, the Invocation Dark Ritual hits $100. Take a look at the Judge promo. Same deal. I get it. It's never going to be as popular as the Mercadian Masks foil. That's obviously, you know, Rebecca Gay. I love your art. I think this is better art than what you did. I'm sorry. Uh, you're never going to see this at $30 again in about 8 to 12 months. I think it's a scarcity issue. Strixhaven isn't highly produced. We're at peak open right now. Mm -hmm. I've spoken to a number of vendors that have essentially been picking this up without using TCG Player, which is actually how I acquired my copies that I have. I have about 10 now. Uh, the Additionally, the TCG stock started about two weeks ago when Strix hit wide release at about 85 copies. We're down to 67 and the price has not shifted yet. So why that's important is because those copies had to go somewhere. It's been at 30 steadily. And if you look at the listings, we don't get above $32 until page four, which means that what's going to happen is this card is gradually just going to disappear at $30. No one's going to pay attention because the price is going to stay $30, and then all of a sudden it hits 40 Yep. And when 40 happens, we get FOMO. Just like with Planar Collapse and a number of other cards. All right, now the price skyrockets. I think playability-wise, this checks all the boxes. Like I said, every Eternal format, every casual player loves this. I don't know about you. I used to love playing, we called it Type X, where it was like four copies of anything. Oh, okay. And just mind twisting my opponent's hand away with multiple dark rituals on turn one. Because why not? Yeah. Uh, it just scratches all of those boxes. Additionally, this is an art style that, and I know we can go back at any time. I don't think we'll see something like this art style until we might go back to Cyberpunk Kamigawa that oh, yeah, was mentioned yeah. once and then never mentioned again. I just think it's a really solid 8 to 12 month turnaround that if you look at the invocation, granted it took much longer, but Thassa's Oracle started this card skyrocketing. I think if we get one card that interacts well with this, one card, this spikes as well. I think the supply is lower because of how many different variations we have, which is something that you and I have talked about, how Wizards seems to be artificially inflating set sizes by increasing variations. $30 is great. I would I bought mine at about 25. I think if you can get in on this card for 35, you're easily outing it for profit in 8 to 12 months time, especially as in-store events start to return. If you can go to your local store now, participate in an event and grab this from somebody's trade binder because they've got their EDH copies already. They don't play Legacy because Legacy's they dead. They don't know how good it is. Yeah, or they don't know how good it is. It's the best format. I'm sorry, guys, really? it is. Uh, then this is an absolute sit for me. I think it is, yes, a little bit longer term to park $30 into when you can buy $30 in Sarkin's Unsealings and probably get the same amount of return for the next six months. It'll happen. Maybe. But I think that 
there's no way on something like this that checks those eternal boxes, that checks those EDH boxes. I don't see how you can lose on this at $30. I mean, the mask's foil hit 300 That's never coming back. No. At this point, your cheapest foil version is the From the Vault version that nobody wants that's around $5. But so what's your spiked. Yeah. So it's it's just a really good in for something that has eternal and not just the format. I mean forever liquidity. Mm-hmm. Forever desirability. Forever cool factor. And I think that if you can get in, like I said, 30, even as high as 35, you can't lose on this one. Mm-hmm. It's just too good. Yeah. For me, Dark Ritual is an interesting card, just on the whole, because almost every printing after Revised has its own art. So you have a lot of people that want to argue their opinion about what's best. But when it it comes down to brass tacks at the end of the day, the people that want to play foils are going to play, generally speaking, uh, first the most attainable foils, and then the ones they like the most if they have that ability and it's not to say that like oh i'm gonna save up now and get my like overtime eat away and my judge promos what what have you it's just somebody has 56 of 60 foils and they need the four dark writs they're going to pick up what they can not looking at you ftv promo yeah and something like this checks a lot of those boxes where it is easily attainable the art on it is really unique the uh, the foiling on it is fairly robust compared to the etched foiling, as we found out. You just don't get a lot of that. And it becomes this kind of like tentpole piece for what you're trying to play. You also have people that like to do things like play either Japanese or Japanese foil versions of decks. And again, this, this ticks all those boxes. Like, yeah, sure the oldest version of a Japanese dark ritual that you can get is far in black border. So it's original art, it's black border, it's in Japanese. You can get a handful of the other foils in Japanese as well, but this is now the most unique version of uh, a foil Japanese dark red. It's the first like full art version that you can get in Japanese. Is it the first full art version you can get in English too? Cause the invocation is not full art. It's just got nope. poopy borders. Yeah. Yeah. Golden turn. Oh, uh, there's a that's right. There's the media insert from the magazines from Japan. The the comics. Yeah. There's that as well that uses the not Ice Age art, but saga. The saga art, which is just the hand from the crypt. It's like cool. Okay, so th- yeah. this is like the second version of a that you can get in Japanese. I don't know if you can get masks in Japanese foil. You so can't get like, masks in Japanese, okay. but they're about eight hundred dollars a piece. Yeah. So. So it, it kind of steers you in that direction where there's like all this weird supplemental demand for this version of the card. And overall, I think it's a really good look for a short term for a short term spec because dark rituals are perennial sellers. They are kind of the epitome of uh, just what do you want to call them? Like bulk pulls. You just find them yeah. in bulk and you pull them because they're quarters all day long either to, to buy a luster in your case, it doesn't matter. It's just super liquid. And something like this being so unique at the end of the day does represent something that is, you know, easier to move right now. And, and in time, once it does hit the expected, you know, I'd assume, you know, 50 to 100. Somewhere in there, yeah. You can move it immediately to a buy list for profit. Yep. And it's, the other nice thing about something like this being so liquid is that, you know what, if you're like, hey, I just want to get out. You're not going to lose out on it, no. even getting out when you're like, I just want to reallocate these funds elsewhere. You're still winning. Yep. Yeah. So, and I think the low barrier to entry is what really makes this uh, so easy and so palatable to move in on. You know, a lot of the other picks that we've talked about with you know price tag between twenty and thirty. They're generally speaking, you know, pretty easy, pretty attainable. This is probably one of the only ones that you can move a playset of in one go as well so that's the other thing when you're looking at buying these is you got to pick the right number you go with five that gives you a playset and one for edh right so or five yep. edh what have you so you can be really specific and really tailor and hone in what you're looking for with regal force you know you know you're basically going to move it 
uh, as a single. And I think that makes this a really interesting and unique pick and definitely, uh, if you just want to look at it this way, a great thought experiment too. You know, yeah. Because like you mentioned, in, in, in any format besides EDH where this is legal, this is a four of, otherwise it's EDH and what have you. So I, yeah. I, I like it all around and I'd be happy to see people pick these up and sit on them if they're willing to put in the time on it, put the time and the funds on it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, a great look overall. Um, and I think this also serves a, another interesting footnote is when they do cards like this, like Mystical Archives and all these other interesting treatments, generally speaking, you want to start to comb through these and look and say, okay, which one of these fit into pillars of older formats? And when they released the Time Spiral stuff, one of the things I did was look through and say, okay, what fits in Storm? Because yeah. that's the deck I play in in, um, in Legacy. And I went through and I said, okay, these are the cards that I need to pick up for Storm. And then we have the Mystical Archives and similarly, what do I need if I want to buy more Japanese cards for Storm, what do I need? What's available to me? And do I want to replace, upgrade, etc.? And it's something I do like all the time with the supplemental stuff whenever they give things a new look. And you can do that with a ton of strategies. They put um, you know, Lightning Helix in yeah. the um, what printing? Mystical Archives. The Mystical Archives. And Tendrils of Agony, right? These are you know, tent poles for various archetypes so you want to start combing through those and saying okay what goes where what seems underserved foil or not what can i pick up in quantity x and eventually move for dollars y and i think this is again a really good example of that too and so there's a lot going on with this card that i like and a lot going on that people can learn from as they watch this card move over time um, yeah uh, before we cut out i do want to mention something funny you can do with regal force so I mentioned elves, right? Um, there's this really goofy card that they re... I don't remember if they're reprinted or not, um, called Cloudstone Curio. Ha! And if you've never seen it, congratulations. Okay, it was a masterpiece. Okay, so this is your piece of hidden tech for EDH. If you're playing, like, green-red elves or just mono-green and you're playing with um, a world enchantment that gives all your guys haste, Concord and... Cro not, yeah, Concord and Crossroads? Yeah, Concord. Okay. Right. So you, your elves need to have haste. Cladstone Curia, whenever a non-artifact permanent enters the battlefield under your control, you may return another permanent you control that shares a permanent type with it to its owner's hand. So you just juggle a Mana Elf and Regal Force and you draw your deck out. The end. That's all I wanted to let you know. It's three, four cards because your Elf needs haste. So Mana Elf, that taps for X, Regal Force, Cladstone, Curio, and a Haste Enabler. Discounting the other Elves on field because you need seven for Regal Force, right? Just draw your yeah. deck. That's it. That's all I want to say. I'm done now. <laughs> these are the things Beautiful. I do. Yeah, these are the things I do. Okay. So that's going to be it for this week. We will be back next week, of course. And until then, we are at MDG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Patreon. You can find the podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. And if you want to see our ugly mugs, the, our YouTube channel has all, out, all these videos. But if you want to find us individually on Twitter, I am at Halt, I am Reptar, and you are... At Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week.